0: Hal Penn, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. You have written a memoir, and it's called You Can't Be Serious, which, okay, occasionally you are serious in the book, but let's talk about where this book came from. It's been five years in the making.
1: Thank you. Uh, It has been technically, technically, it's been almost 10 years in the making because literally the day that that I left the White House after- Mm -hmm. And are there ended my my manager my Hollywood manager called and he he was already trying to help me line up jobs and everything but he goes hey by the way you need to write a book and I said what and he goes yeah yeah you just just worked at the White House it was your first black president nobody's written a book yet after they've left the administration you need to do it and I was like dude this is not why I did this no. He's like, no, no, I get it. Yeah, yeah, you want to serve your country, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, no, but for real, that's why I... I was like, I'm not going to write a book about what? The guy is still president? That just doesn't seem like... So it took another at least five years before I realized that I did have a story that I wanted to tell that certainly intersects with public service, but you know that's not the be-all and, and, and all of the story I wanted to tell. And, and then from that point to actually getting through to writing it was another, I would say, year and a half. And then uh, just before the pandemic, I probably started writing it and then you know had plenty of time. So...
0: You're a Jersey kid. Jersey kid ends up at UCLA. Yes. You don't go to medical school. Correct. You don't become a consultant. You don't become a banker or an accountant. You you don't do any of the things that brown kids like you are expected to do. You become an actor.
1: I do. I do.
0: <laughs> it's awesome, but we need to talk about this because you have blown up every single model minority myth there is in only a few years. I mean, you're not that old.
1: Right. Thank you. <laughs> the tricky thing for me about growing up in Jersey and then leaving to go pursue an acting career, it was twofold, right? It was the, how does somebody who looked like me actually enter what I at the time had perceived as this unattainable monolith in many ways, right? How does somebody who doesn't know anybody who isn't white or black, how do we, or especially who isn't white, but at, at that time, at least there were some opportunities for black actors, although certainly not what they should have been it was navigating that space. And then it was also navigating the expectations from the South Asian community that I didn't seem to be meeting, right? The fact that we don't encourage folks within the community to pursue not just a career in the arts, we just at that time, especially, we just don't really uh, encourage them to pursue anything outside of the sciences. And there are a number of reasons for that, including immigration patterns and how it was that our parents' generation even managed to come and the fact that they filled a labor shortage in the sciences. None of that is anything that you understand when you're 16 years old. All you're here, is an actor. That's not why I moved to America, right? And you you don't fully get it. So it was both of those things. I'm glad you asked that in that way. It was kind of navigating both of those things simultaneously, which, which was a trip while I was doing it. And because I'm so used to telling stories like this, especially those early life stories, only to close friends and only after like beer number three, When I started writing the book, and it was just me and a notepad and a computer, that first draft got dark. I wasn't expecting those early life stories to be so dark. And I would show a chapter to Josh or send a chapter to my editor, just raw first draft. And both of them were like, "Uh, I thought you were writing a funny book. (laughs) Anyway, the point being, it was oddly kind of cathartic, or I'm like, oh, there, there are all of these emotions that as actors, I think especially, we, we just kind of always keep with us and had to sort through how do, how do you tell a story, keeping the emotion alive, but also keeping the perspective of, of now being in my early 40s and being able to to have that arc in my head. And part of that too is just an exercise and you know, I'm, I'm used to writing sketches and characters. And when the characters, you, you know, going through revision after revision to really making it something that's readable, something that, look, something that makes it, what I wanted it to be, which is I want you to feel like you're having a beer with when you're reading this thing or to get to that point, took a few, a few different versions, which is why it, it bumped up on those four or five years.
0: Chapter two is titled what happened to the other 13 points and other questions that don't have answers. And if you've grown up Brown in America, even if your parents are born in America, you have hit these questions so you don't have to have immigrant parents, but I want to add two questions to that that I think are sort of missing. Yeah. What are you? And know where you are really from.
1: Uh-huh. Yep.
0: I mean, come on, you're you're in Jersey. It's what the early '80s yeah. when you're in elementary school. Yeah. It's the early '80s. You have discovered, as you call it, your superpower, mm-hmm. which is acting and telling stories. And you are really happy, and you are in your element. Right. But dude, people don't know what to do with you.
1: So in my case, I think because because it was New Jersey, and it was the part of New Jersey that's a suburb of New York City. So the question, what are you, or what are you really, I didn't experience that in its full form until I moved to LA. Okay. looking at entertainment frankly because entertainment is for everything that we think of the entertainment industry and and I will fully disclose I love it and I work in it because I have such a passion for it but it is one of the least diverse places I've ever been in my life and especially when I was starting out in my career it, the idea of where are you from what are you all of that not to jump too far ahead that chapter 2 in the book the reason that I focused it more on kind of the pressure from within the community was that the pressure outside of the community at that point was Probably your classic middle school bullying. In those days, we didn't call it bullying. We just called it eighth grade. And I'm so glad there's a term for it now. I'm glad that as a society, we're like, uh, that's not cool. We shouldn't do that to each other. I knew that the teachers knew that there was this race-based bullying happening. And by the same token, we all knew that there were maybe one or two teachers who wanted to help you out. And so props to them. You know, I remember, I think I mentioned him in the book, Mr. Manziano, our band teacher at Marlboro Middle School who would let anyone say that they had to practice their instrument during lunch so that you could just hide in his music room And eat lunch, which is where I ate my lunch most days. That was the early teenage years for me. It was less the the othering across the board because people sort of knew, like, yeah, you're Indian, you're brown. We live outside of New York City. We watch The Simpsons. Like, you know, you're whatever the cultural frames of reference were, that was what it was for them. The, The bigger challenges as I started having an interest in the arts was trying to be either taken seriously or trying to feel encouraged in that space from within our own brown community
0: <laughs> but it's a little harrowing as you write about the early parts of your career I mean beyond the beater car that you have at UCLA which people can discover the name of the car yeah. the story behind the car that is such a boy story oh my god that is boys at college and it's a great story and it's very funny and it's very industrious and yay you for figuring out how to have a car because in LA you kind of really need a car yeah 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 But you've played terrorists. You've been asked to put on an Indian accent more times than you can count. And I mean, dude, you don't even really sound like you're from Jersey, but... You know, I'm sure you can do a Jersey accent if you need to.
1: Try me after my second shot of Jaeger and and the Jersey come.
0: Okay. (laughs) Here's the thing, though. Here you are. You're trying to make a go of it. You actually have an agent. You've lucked out. You've got the right agent who understands the business. And you have this really interesting line that I've never thought of Hollywood this way. But in the book, you talk about how people are kind of brutally honest Mm -hmm. in Hollywood. And yet here you are being pigeonholed into rolls as a terrorist and rolls, I mean, okay, Taj Mahal, the Indian foreign exchange. I mean, at least it wasn't long duck dong. I mean, that is a step up.
1: I guess Taj Mahal was named after a building.
0: I've heard maybe of something like this. I don't know. I've seen it on postcards.
1: Those years were a trip because I think, you know, that there was, um, like you said, this agent was, she was wonderful in that she really had a command over a couple of things. It was a command over why I just as a human, as a young actor, care so deeply for storytelling. And she knew, she's like, I, I know that the reason you majored in this, the reason that you want to be an actor is because you love this. You love performing. You love making people laugh. You love making them think. She also had an incredible understanding of how hollywood worked and just her business acumen was so high where she she would explain you know it's really hard for me to get somebody who looks like you in for an audition unless it's specifically written south asian and if it's specifically written south asian guess what it's also deeply stereotypical so it's that weird catch-22 of i need you to get work so that i can pitch you for bigger things but i know that the only work that's available for you if you're even lucky enough to get that is going to be something pretty stereotypical and the taj mahal story is to me probably the most pivotal of that there were other stories leading up to it by the way i And I'm sure you noticed, by the way, for for a lot of those early stories, especially, I've named a couple of projects just because they're so kind of culturally iconic. But one of the reasons that I specifically didn't want to name names of people is because that part of this book is about systems and how systems can change. And because I love what I do so much and because I'm really rooting for all of those changes, like over the last 10 or 20 years, undoubtedly Hollywood has moved in the right direction. There's also undoubtedly still quite a long way to go, but not being bogged down by one individual project or one individual person to me allows us to look at how those changes take place over that amount of time. Now, with that said, I'm going to tell you about Sabrina the Teenage Witch. So that was one of those one of those examples. It was before the Taj Mahal stuff. That shows Sabrina the Teenage Witch right about the talking cat or whatever they could hear his thoughts, whatever it was. I got this audition to be on an episode of Sabrina, and it was for the part of the kid in Sabrina's study group at college whose name was Prajeeb, and it was just a handful of lines, and, and I kind of looked at the script, and I was like, oh, this is really fun, and I'm going to create a whole backstory for my character, right, like most actors do, and I'm imagining that he's from Seattle, and he really likes Pearl Jam, and he wears flannels, and he likes small batch organic coffee. That's my version of Prajeeb, and I go into the audition, and I feel like I do a good job. They all say thank you. I'm walking back to the car and the casting director is running after me. And he goes, Cal, uh, the producers want to know if you'll, if you'll do it again. And I said, sure. And I, I walk back with him. And right before we get into the audition room, he goes, uh, just so you know, they, they want you to do it with an accent. And the door opens. I'm like, oh. So I say hi to everybody again. And they go, you were just so funny, Cal Penn. I said, thank you so much. We want you to do it again. And this time with an accent. And so I said what I usually say in situations like that, because I want them to say it to my face. I go, oh, awesome. What kind of accent do you want? I can do Irish, Scottish, English, Jewish, Italian. And uh, one of the producers who did not appreciate that just looks at me and goes, uh, why don't we just stick to Indian? So I kind of thought to myself, well, uh, my rent is about 550 bucks a month, and this job pays about 750. So I can do this accent and I can be set for a month and not have to worry about applying for the Starbucks job or doing the production assistant thing that I was doing. And and so I'm going to do the accent they want. So I did the accent they wanted, went home, called my agent, this woman who gave great advice. And I called her and she said, hey, I was just about to call you. You got the job. You got this part in Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And I didn't feel happy. And I was so cognizant of this where I thought, you know, all my other actor and aspiring actor friends, when they book jobs like this, they're so happy. Like people go out for drinks, you celebrate with your friends, you're excited. Even if it's just like a five-line job, you're like really excited that you got this amazing opportunity. And I don't get to have that moment because I'm thinking about an accent and I'm thinking about a stereotype. So I shared that with her and I I said, do you have any advice? I, I would love to do this part without the accent, would you be able to call them and ask if that's possible? And she said, you know, if I can give you some advice, I would accept the job if I were you because you need it on your resume. And when you go in, go in a little early that day and have a talk with the director, pull him aside and say, you know, would you mind, explain your situation and and see if you'd mind uh, if you do it without the accent. I said, that's great advice. So I was really nervous, obviously. Uh, I go in, you know, two weeks later, whenever it was, and I find the director early in the morning, he's by the coffee cart and I thank him for having me on the show. And which was true. I said, you know, I'm excited. I I get to do something that my little cousins can watch. And I said, I was hoping that maybe I could play Prajeeb without an Indian accent. You know, I, I created this whole backstory for where he's from seattle and he likes coffee and all this stuff and uh the director just looked at me and he said (laughs) no no no. uh no you're doing the accent that's why we hired you and i said oh well you know i i just kind of thought like i audition a lot with that kind of an accent and i just thought it might be more interesting if i get to use the way i normally speak like my real voice and kind of find the humor and some of the some of the writing instead and he goes no 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 that accent's really funny so you're gonna do the accent And then I thought, maybe I'm just fully not explaining myself. Maybe he just doesn't understand, right? So then I said, look... (sighs) I always grew up seeing kind of stereotypical characters. I feel like it's kind of a stereotype if he has an accent. I've got little cousins. I just thought it would be so cool if instead of seeing a stereotype now that they're growing up, you know, that they could maybe see somebody like me on screen who talks and looks like them and and that that would be, you know, that that would be a kind of a huge, cool moment for them. And he looks at me and he says, well, your little cousins should be lucky that you're even on TV to begin with. And so should you. You're doing that accent. And he walks off. And I thought, "Oh, okay. So this idea that that people are mean and racist only because they're ignorant and they don't understand, that's not true. They do understand." it's a choice they're making. And then I thought about other shows that were on the air, like Seinfeld and Friends, shows that are decidedly white, right? And that doesn't just happen. Those producers and content creators, and to be fair, they're obviously very good shows with great writing, but they chose to exclude people of color from their versions of New York City. Otherwise, we'd be on those shows. So that all kind of clicked in that moment. And I thought, oh, I see what this is this is about power and this is about an archaic way of doing business. And it's of course, way more complicated than that, which I learned later in life as I started working more, but I wasn't happy doing that job. And I went home and I, you know, I, I felt kind of crummy. And I thought like, you know, th- that step. Beyond that, we're like all my other friends who book jobs like this and they get to celebrate after it's done. This just this feels so cumbersome to have to think about things like representation when all I really want to do is celebrate the fact that I booked a really small job on a on a TV show. There are probably a hundred stories like that that I've got from auditions that I did and didn't do and you know, jobs that I said no to, things that I said yes to. But in a nutshell, I, you know, I I talked about that one because it's a show that we all know. And it was an experience that I hope doesn't exist anymore for a lot of folks, but it really wasn't that long ago, you know, when when stuff like that was happening. And I thought it was good to share.
0: And the flip side of that though, is Harold and Kumar written by two white guys from Jersey and greenlit by a white kid and a black kid Because you say they're both very young and they gamble on it and you didn't get paid very much. John Cho didn't get paid very much. Ultimately, the movie made its money on DVD and rentals. And I mean, it's Harold and Kumar go to White Castle and then Harold and Kumar escape from Guantanamo Bay. I have not seen the Christmas movie. I'm sorry, dude. I don't do Christmas even for you.
1: No. It's all gratuitous 3D.
0: Yeah, and I'm okay. Like somebody else can experience that. But more importantly, as a brown kid in Massachusetts, though, who went to college in Maine, having those movies and being able to laugh at movies like that and have the model minority myth blown up on screen in Dolby surround sound was really quite excellent and a little ahead of its time.
1: It was a little ahead of its time. Look, I, I, um, I love playing Kumar. He's way cooler than I will ever be in my life. If I can play Harold and Kumar 69 when I'm 100 years old, I would consider myself very lucky. And yes, that was a 69 joke. And uh, yes, it was written by two, two guys, uh, John Hurwitz and Hayden Schlossberg, two white dudes who grew up in New Jersey. The reason they wrote that movie was they had plenty of Indian and Asian friends growing up and they thought it was super weird that in movies, they, if they did exist at all, they'd pop in for like one or two lines and then they would just be absent. And they were like, well, what if we just write a movie with those guys? And they did. And and surprisingly, they sold it. And to your point, they sold it because there were two young executives at New Line Cinema who were given one shot to greenlight something that year. And this was what they chose to greenlight. And the audition process was so long. And I I don't remember which chapter, but I write about it because it was such a pleasant audition experience and it was so refreshing and eye-opening. And it was just so cool to be auditioning with other people who just, no matter who they were, it was all about the craft. And when John Cho and I booked the parts, we, we were shooting the movie in in uh, Toronto and Cho knocks on my apartment door the night before the first rehearsal. So the night that we got in and uh, he goes, Hey man, we're supposed to be best friends. We don't know each other. You want to grab a, a drink? I'm like, yeah. Let's do that. And literally over the first drink, he just says, can you believe this movie is being made? And I said, no. And he goes, I mean, the idea that that a studio is greenlit, a movie with two Asian Americans as leads in a comedy that's not about their ethnicity is so groundbreaking and so refreshing and I'm just so happy to be a part of it and my eyes lit up and I was like dude me too you know I had no idea if he shared the same perspective if he had similar experiences you know and now 15 years later I mean he is like a brother to me and we we know each other very well, but it was just that first conversation that was about exactly what it seems like you experienced when you watched it. You know, for the first time, that was our experience making it, and it was so special for for that reason and the fact that we just we just wanted to act, we just wanted to make people laugh. This was a, our first chance to really do that.
0: Okay, but John Cho also gives you a copy of one of the best books in the world, Jhumpa Lahiri's Interpreter of Maladies. It's a debut collection of stories that won the Pulitzer Prize right. the year it was published. I mean, yeah. it is a spectacular story collection. So you already know Mira Nair, who has created the movie Mississippi Masala, which so many of us love. But this leads you to the next piece of your career, the movie The Namesake, which is unlike anything you've done before, probably a little closer to you in real life, Jersey Boy. Can we talk about that for a second?
1: Yeah, I came across Jumpa's writing because of John Cho. So both of us are avid readers, John even more so than me, to be honest. And he casually, when we were shooting, I think when we were shooting Guantanamo Bay, he said, hey, man, uh, what do you think of Jumpa Lahiri? And I said, who? And he goes, come on, you read Interpreter of Melodies, right? And I said, no what's that? He goes, you haven't read Interpreter of Melodies. I was like, come on, just what is it? So I go out and I I got it immediately, read it, obviously fell in love with it. And then the namesake came out shortly thereafter. We both got and read the namesake around the same time. And we called each other and said, I mean, we need to turn this into a movie. I need to play Gogol. Mira and I beat us to it. And she she got the rights to the namesake. And uh, then I began this really aggressive campaign to get cast. And it was, a, a, again, another long, laborious kind of process. And at the end of it, when I did finally get cast, I'm not ruining the story because everybody knows Google. But one of the reasons that I ultimately got cast was because Mira's son Zoran, who was 14 at the time that we made the movie, was a huge Harold and Kumar fan. He and his his best friend at the time, Sam Walker, both of whom I Gave a a shout out to in the book because for a a couple of months before I was able to audition for The Namesake, they apparently lobbied Mira almost nightly saying, hey, Kelpin from Harold and Kumar, you've got to audition to be Gogol in The Namesake. And The Namesake is a drama. It's It's an independent film. It's a drama. It's very much a Mira Nair film. So I had written Mira a letter trying to really make my case to let me audition. And really the only reason that she let me was because her son lobbied for so long and then she came across my letter. And so when I traced that back, it, it went back to Van Wilder in which I played Taj Mahal. <laughs> and that agent that I had at the time, Barbara Cameron, who kind of laid out the pros and cons and the kind of had that business acumen and said, it's going to ultimately, hopefully be a good thing for you to play this part because it'll be a credit on your resume turned out to be true. I think one of the things that really put me over the edge in booking the role of Kumar in Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle was the fact that I was one of the only South Asian actors who had a supporting lead in a studio film before because I had done Van Wilder and played Taj Mahal. And by the same token, the reason that I got the audition for The Namesake is because of Zoran, Mira's son, who was a big Harold and Kumar fan. So had I outright rejected doing Van Wilder because of the stereotyping, I wouldn't have had the chance to do Harold and Kumar or The Namesake. And The Namesake is the project of which I'm the most proud and was the most meaningful for for so many reasons reasons, including that John and I, you know, shared that experience reading the book.
0: It's the Brown Catch-22 that you write about at multiple points in the book. And I'm switching gears just slightly for a second, because you've got this big, booming acting career. You end up being a regular on the series House. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you have a giant switch, Uh let's call it. Now, I shouldn't posit it quite as a giant switch, because when you're 16, you're telling one of your aunties, no, I want to do public service and I want to act. I want to do both. And your auntie is saying, oh, no, sweetie, that's not how this works.
1: In fairness, that was actually my white guidance
0: counselor. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Sorry. My bad. Okay, so (laughs) guidance counselor. Okay, so all props to aunties, though, because we all have aunties who keep us on the straight and narrow. But sometimes they say stuff where you're like, oh, you just said that in my face. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) wow. You just said that to me.
1: (laughs) Can I tell you an aside? Can I tell you? Yes, please. Recently, like I want to say two months ago after everybody finally got vaccinated, I mm-hmm. went home. Uh, I can't believe I'm telling this story. Well, I'll give my parents a heads up. They were having some friends over and I hadn't seen some of them in a while. And and like a lot of people, I, I've gained some COVID weight. And so I'm conscious of that. And I I walk in and three aunties are standing there when I walk in. And one of them goes, uh, wow, Gulpin, you you look great. You've lost weight. And I said, What? No, auntie, thank you so much. I I actually gained, you know, probably like 15 pounds during the pandemic. No, no, no. Your body looks great. Look at your body. You look great. You look like you've lost weight. Look at your body. It's your face where you've gained all of that weight. Look at his face. And then she summons the other two aunties over and goes, see his face? Look how round, round his face is. Then the other auntie is grabbing my face going, yes. Wow, yes, but his body looks skinny, but look at his face. Oh, his face is so round. And I immediately texted Josh and I was like, so I want to die. And I know I said I wasn't drinking tonight, but I'm going to have five glasses of gin because I'm about to get into it with some aunties tonight, man. (laughs) So we do love them and they do have no filter ever. And they (laughs) by the way, they weren't wrong. You know what I mean? Like I do gain the weight in my face first. So I was like, I really can't be mad at you at the end of all that.
0: (laughs) No, you really can't be mad at aunties, but you can marvel at aunties. Yes. Like I frequently marvel at some of the things. I'm just like, okay, here we go. I love that story though. We might just leave it in anyway. But you do, you take a step back from a career and it's not like you're in any kind of lull in your career, but you have an opportunity to become a surrogate for the Obama campaign in Iowa. And you start flying back and forth between Los Angeles and Iowa to campaign in, this is 07. What brought that on? I mean, this is a big part of the book. So obviously we're going to let people experience that piece of the book, but I don't want to ignore it because it's a big step and a big change.
1: It was a big change. You know, in the abridged version you read, right. I don't want to ruin the the kind of, I think it spans a couple of chapters, but essentially Olivia Wilde, who was on House with me and is a, is a dear friend, she, she knocked on my dressing room door one day and said, uh, hey, I have a plus one to a Barack Obama event. Do you want to come? I was like, oh, the Illinois senator? And she's like, yeah, I've, I've seen you reading his books on set. Like, you know who he is. Uh, you should come. And I said no, because I knew that it was probably going to be some type of a campaign event. And my grandparents who marched with Gandhi had instilled in us these family values of service. It was never politics. It was always service. It was, you know, write the letter to your representatives, go to the protest, make your voice heard, do the right thing. It was never, you know, support a politician. And so that just wasn't on my radar. And Olivia really made a strong case. And I decided to go to this event. I was inspired at this event. Just by conversations that I had had with Obama and his young staffers, and I thought, "All right, Olivia's going to Iowa for three days. I'll go with her. I'll go. I'll go to Des Moines for three days before the Iowa caucuses, and I'll help out. And at the end of those three days, I decided to stay for two or three more days uh, because I, I just I was so floored that there were these people who were roughly my age, plus or minus five years. Right, they're in their twenties and thirties, um, making almost no money, sleeping on couches, working for this guy who was thirty points down in the polls." Against, I think both John Edwards and Secretary Clinton, who by every measure were just way more qualified to lead the country by the barometers that we use. And and still, they just thought, you know, we know that we're we're not doing this because we want a, a job with a future president. We're doing this because we don't think that our politics should have lobbying money and This guy who's running was opposed to the Iraq war before he was a senator and and all of this kind of stuff that I thought, yeah, I can get behind that. Let me do that. And then I'm there for a month and a half off and on. Obama wins the Iowa caucuses. His campaign expands. You know, when you start with a, any political campaign from an early stage, as it expands, it's like these concentric circles where if you're in one of the smaller circles, you're sort of trusted with more and more to do and more and more kind of leadership roles. And, and so I found myself working on youth outreach and strategy and the arts policy committee and, and things that really kind of flourished in that next year until the general election. Long story short, he becomes the president-elect and there was an opportunity to, well, when I say there was an opportunity to serve at the White House, I am self-deprecating about this in the book, but it's a true story. I'm an idiot and... This is probably, you know what, I'll, I will pause here because if there's one thing the pandemic's done for all of us, it's it's everybody saying, am I happy in my job? And do I actually need to go into an office? And how do I get another job if I'm not happy with this one? I was very happy with my job working on House and acting is always my first love. But I kind of thought, all right, I've spent a year and a half basically telling other people that they should vote for this guy. Shouldn't I, if there's an opportunity, apply for a job in government, and maybe take a sabbatical from acting to kind of help out and execute the things that we promised. And so the Obama campaign at, at the end of the campaign before inauguration circulated this link this change.gov like here's where you upload your resume if you were a staffer and somebody will call you if you're qualified for a job and i thought all right well i'll just do that i'll just put my resume on the website and somebody will call me now i knew that thousands of people were doing this because there were thousands of people who worked on the on the campaign what i didn't realize was that like any job like when you put your resume on the website you're also supposed to call your network supposed to, you know, reach out to people, especially if they were people who you've worked for, for the last year and a half, like the analogy I would use is the company got bought out, but it's still the same company. Like you're going from campaign to governance. It's still the same set of people, except the responsibilities are now bigger. So if you want to do that, you should have both the respect to your employers and the self-respect to make that known. The only person I told was Dan Spilo, my manager, my acting manager. And that was it. And so we're backstage at the inauguration because I was invited to be part of this inaugural concert, which was an incredible opportunity. One of the perks of that was you got to bring your family and a couple of friends backstage to sort of say hello to the incoming first family. And I had not met Mrs. Obama before. And I said hello to her. I'd already said hello to the president. And she said something, which I assumed she says to everybody, which is, hey, thanks so much for your help on the campaign. I hope you continue to help us out and stay in touch. And I said, of course. And Dan, the only other person I told that I applied for this job, he goes, well, you know, Cal applied for a job right at the White House. And I was like, oh, no, man, come on. Don't do this right now. This, that's not how you don't do that. And Mrs. Obama is, of course, perpetually gracious and incredible, says, uh, what do you mean? What did you apply for? And he goes, no, he applied. He applied for a job at the White House and nobody even called him back. And I was like, yo, Dan, this is not a Hollywood mixer. You don't just say whatever comes into your head. This is politics. And this is the future first lady. Like, you got to be respectful. And she just says, what does he mean, Cal? What do you mean you applied for a job? So then I said, yeah, I I applied. I I submitted my resume for for a White House job. And she looks at me quizzically and says, well, who did you apply with? That's the moment it dawned on me that I was an idiot. And I said, oh, well, I... I put my resume on change.gov. I mean, she gives me the look that like you would you would give somebody if they like dropped an ice cream cone on the floor, a piece of pizza, and just picked it up and ate it in front of you after the five second rule. She just looks at me like, "What's wrong with you?" And she called uh, the president back over, and he was talking to somebody else at the time, and she forced me to tell him exactly that. And they both sort of looked at me like like I was uh, well. He sort of smirked at me. She looked at me like I was an idiot, which I was. The look was not. It was less about judgment and more about. Oh, are you not serious about this, or or are you? And and uh, and he said, well, you know, let, let's look into this. And had a guy named Chris Liu, who who became the cabinet secretary, and was helping with, with hiring, called me the next day to sort of discuss like the idea that they were actually already looking for somebody in the outreach office to do three of the jobs that I had done for the previous year and a half on the campaign, which was outreach to Asian American Pacific Islanders, outreach to young Americans, and outreach to the arts community. And so I was oddly qualified for three jobs at the white house not just even the one but nobody knew you know the nature of any job collecting website is if an algorithm's going to do that job it's it's different than than a human actually sorting through it and you know I tell the story knowing that obviously people now know yes it's president and mrs obama and, and they're either revered or hated depending on your politics but the big lesson there was less about the fact that they were even the incoming first family and more about if you're applying for a job and you've just gotten done working for somebody who you've done incredible things with and been along for this incredible ride, like have the respect to them and the self-respect to just make it known, you know, you're not asking for a favor. You're just making it known that if you are in fact qualified, you'd like to do this thing. So that was a big, uh, a big ridiculous lesson for me in, in getting that White House job.
0: You go to UCLA to learn how to act and make films, and you learn about the importance of story. I mean, that's the one thing, even when you're in the fourth grade and you figure out that acting's your superpower, story is it for you. And actually working in government, it turns out you're really good at being an organizer. Those three jobs that you have, those are all organizing roles. And again, that comes back to story and connecting with other people over story. And when you take things out of just the data sets and tell the stories about the people that they impact, then you connect much faster with the people. So what did you learn writing a memoir?
1: Well, I mean, the first draft, like I mentioned, was just all just, wow, I haven't felt this self-loathing since eighth grade. (laughs) I mean, the, the biggest thing was I usually write sketches and characters. So when you're writing about you and your experiences—it's—it's it's filtering those stories in ways that that can resonate with somebody who doesn't necessarily know you. And I am notoriously bad at how I'm perceived. I don't have that sense of self that I think a lot of people in in the public eye or in public professions tend to have. You know, I guess that's a good quality in some ways, and it's also ridiculous when I go to the pharmacy in my pajamas, forgetting that somebody might want a selfie. I think you're right—the the storytelling aspect. You know, I wanted to tell my story in a way that made you feel like you were having a beer with me, and what I mean by that is, even though I I delve into things like identity and politics and family history and things that Things that I'm really excited to share with everybody. I want it to be accessible to people who might disagree with me or might not have experience with the things that I have experiences with. So on the one hand, it's it's a a book that I wrote specifically because it's for the 18 year old version of me. It's for anybody who's ever had multiple interests and passions and has ever been told you can't do that, you're crazy. Uh, has ever considered whether they were actually crazy for having these these dueling passions. But then it's also for you know for the same reason that I love making comedies. Harold Lee Kumar was never about politics. It's got political elements, it's got identity, it's got satire, but ultimately that's a movie about friendship. It's not even about marijuana and hamburgers, frankly. It's a movie about friendship. And what we love about that is that people from all walks of life seem to be able to identify with it because it's about friendship. And one of the the process of writing this book, I really wanted to write as if I'm speaking to friends who I don't care what their politics are. I don't care what their do's and don'ts are. I just want to share my truth in a way that hopefully makes you smile, you know? So it took a few drafts to get to that point.
0: So what's next for you then?
1: Look, in an ideal world, I can option this book and then Dev Patel can play me because I'm too old for the first half of the book now. <laughs> so like that'd be the move right there. I'm developing a couple of things for TV and there are a couple of film projects that I'm working on the, the next year and a half. So uh so you know it's it's mostly acting and We have talked about a fourth Harold and Kumar. We would love to make it. I know John is still uh, working on Cowboy Bebuff from Netflix and he's living uh, in New Zealand and John and Hayden, the guys who wrote and created the franchise, are living in Atlanta for Cobra Kai. They're amazing Netflix show they created. So we've got to find the right window, but uh, that's also on the agenda, I hope.
0: Okay, but Bob Barnett is your book agent. That's no small thing, my friend.
1: He's amazing. I love Bob Barnett. He's incredible.
0: So more books? I hope. Possibly? (laughs) My
1: my dream is for this book to do well. I wrote it myself. That was important to me also. It's one of the reasons it took so long. There have been aunties who have called me to tell me how much of an advance other South Asian writers have gotten for their books. I can assure you I'm not in that ballpark, right? Then they've also called to be like, Like you mentioned Jumpa, right? I joke, I don't know if this joke is still in the book. It was in an earlier draft where it was like, oh, Jumpa Leary, she won a Pulitzer for her first book. And then like awkward pause, auntie stares at you because she knows you too have a book coming out. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm winning a Pulitzer for my first book, auntie, but I'd like to make the bestseller list and write a second book. Is that good enough for you? (laughs) But yeah, no, I'd I'd love to continue writing. I I really enjoyed the process. I I enjoyed sharing a lot of these stories with people and I'd love to do more.
0: That sounds like a really excellent plan. We're looking forward to more books from you and definitely more movies, but also more books. So thanks very much.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.